0: It seems to me, if there ever was a time in the history of the world where God is calling us to stand for our convictions, it's today. See, you don't really believe what you don't stand for. If you don't stand for something, you're going to fall for anything. If you don't stand for something, your beliefs are not worth very much. If there's nothing you're passionate about, if nothing really matters... If everything is kind of like a blur on the spiritual radar screen of life, your faith is of little value.
1: That's Pastor Mark Finley, and this is Hope Lives 365. At Hope Lives 365, we believe God answers prayer. Keep in mind this telephone number throughout today's broadcast, 888-244-HOPE. Here is Pastor Mark Finley with today's Hope Lives 365.
0: Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you're doing in the world. We thank you for the way Jesus is moving, and it's so amazing to see both here in Warrington and around the world, the blessings of God, the fact we know that something unusual is happening, that this is a preparation for your soon return. It's a preparation for the coming of Jesus, that you're gathering your children, some who were former Adventists, you're bringing them back, some who had no knowledge of your message and your words, you're bringing them. And, Lord, we're just amazed at what we see you doing. And we pray that you would move today in this service. In Christ's name, amen. A number of years ago, Nikita Khrushchev, who was the premier of Russia at the time, gave a speech to the supreme Soviet in Russia. And as he was speaking, he was talking about the atrocities of Stalin. And he was very open. He was talking about how Stalin put to death or killed 20 million Russians. And he was very, very critical of Stalin. Halfway through his speech, somebody passed up a note. And the note said this. It said, Premier Khrushchev. What were you doing when Stalin committed all these atrocities? Well, that really angered Khrushchev. And he shouted before the Supreme Soviet, Who passed up this note? Not a person stirred. I'll give him one minute to stand up. Who passed up this note? The seconds ticked off. Still, nobody moved. All right, Khrushchev said, I'll tell you what I was doing. I was doing exactly what the writer of this note was doing absolutely nothing. Khrushchev was afraid for his life, and he was afraid to stand up and be counted. He was afraid to stand for his convictions. He was afraid to stand tall. It seems to me, if there ever was a time in the history of the world where God is calling us to stand for our convictions, it's today. See, you don't really believe what you don't stand for. If you don't stand for something, you're going to fall for anything. If you don't stand for something, your beliefs are not worth very much. If there's nothing you're passionate about, if nothing really matters, if everything is kind of like a blur on the spiritual radar screen of life, your faith is of little value. This morning, I want to study the life of one that stood tall, one of history's courageous giants. He served under at least five heads of state. He began his diplomatic service after he graduated from university and he continued approximately 66 years in the work of government. Kings valued his counsel. Politicians treasured his judgment. Statesmen sought out his wisdom. And when his nation fell to a foreign power, surprisingly enough, this secretary of state was amazingly appointed to another term by a foreign conquering power. Now, Daniel's courage speaks of three vital elements, and the message comes echoing down the corridors of time, and it speaks to us this morning in this church in this place. And Daniel speaks to us of three things. First, you can never stand tall unless you stand firm. Second, you can never stand tall unless you bow low. And thirdly, you can never stand tall unless you look beyond. So I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Daniel chapter 1. I'm going to spend some time in the entire book of Daniel this morning, discovering how we can stand tall in the circumstances of our life, stand for the courage of our convictions, which in a world of secular values is increasingly more difficult. Daniel, the first chapter. And we begin there with the first verse, Daniel chapter 1, and we're looking there at verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. Now notice, there are two cities, Babylon and Jerusalem. Two kings, Nebuchadnezzar and Jehoiakim. Babylon attacks Jerusalem, devastates it, overthrows it. Here, evil triumphs over good. Sin triumphs over righteousness. The forces of hell triumph over the forces of God. If you were Daniel and his friends taken captive, never to see your home again, you might raise a lot of questions. God, where in the world are you? God, Jerusalem is in ruins. God, the sanctuary has been invaded and the sacred vessels have been taken out. Daniel could have looked back at the smoldering ruins of Jerusalem and felt bitter and angry. He could easily have said, I'll never see God again. I'll never see my family again. God, why did you forsake us? Have you ever felt that in your life? Lord, I've tried to serve you. Lord, I've tried to be obedient to you. But look at what's happening in my life. It is really kind of a mess. There's an interesting nuance in verse 2. Notice what it says. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. The word for Lord in the Hebrew language is the word Adonai. And it means the one who rules over all. The one who is supreme. The one who sits on his throne. From an earthly perspective, it may look like things are a mess. But God is still Adonai. God is still sitting on his throne. God is still in control. And if God wants to get Daniel into Babylon to influence Nebuchadnezzar, to transform the whole nation of Babylon, God has ways of doing that. If God wants to influence eventually me to Persia, God has ways of doing that. So because I cannot see the purposes of God, because I cannot see the plan of God, doesn't mean God isn't working out his plan. You may not always see the plan of God in your life. You may not always see God working in your life. Things may seem to be upside down in your life. The mountain may seem high. But yet, God has a divine plan that you may never realize. Daniel is taken captive. King Nebuchadnezzar did not try to manipulate these Hebrews' thinking, and he did not try to coerce them to serve him. His strategy was gradually, imperceptibly, to get them to compromise their integrity. Satan often doesn't work in our lives with some great moral compromise, but he works gradually, imperceptibly, leading us to take little steps on the journey away from God until he brings us to the point where we're doing things that we never imagined we would do. The steps are little at first. A person misses church for a week because they're a little tired. And that becomes two weeks or three weeks. A person is unfaithful in their stewardship to God because they have bills. A person begins to compromise their integrity by one glass of wine here and another there, or eating this or eating that. And what ultimately happens, gradually, imperceptibly, the pathway down is extremely slow. Notice what the strategy of Nebuchadnezzar was. Let your eyes drop down, please, to Daniel chapter 1. You'll notice Daniel 1, verse 6. Now, from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. When a Hebrew mother named her children, the name was a character name for the child to serve God. The name Daniel means God is my judge, God is my vindicator. So, captive in Babylon. Every time Daniel said his name, God is my judge. Now, in the ancient world, a judge was not somebody that condemns you. Now, I wouldn't like to look forward to going before the judge, would you? But in the ancient world, the judge is the one that said all things right. He was the vindicator. So every time Daniel said his name, he would be saying, God is the one that's going to set all things right. God is going to vindicate me. I may be in captive in Babylon. So his name reminded him of his God. The name Hananiah means the Lord is gracious unto me. So when little Hanny was running around as a little boy, He would say, my name is Hananiah. The Lord is gracious unto me. I may be captive in Babylon, but the Lord is gracious unto me. The name Michel means godlike, one who is honest, who has qualities of integrity, one who is just. Michel, name Michael in English, godlike. Azariah, the Lord is my helper. So the word Azariah in Hebrew is the Lord is my helper. So that was really problematic for Nebuchadnezzar because the names spoke of a God that was on his throne, a God that was gracious, a God that was all-powerful. So Nebuchadnezzar had a strategy. I will not get them to bow down to idols initially, but I will give them honored names. And so what were the names changed to? Verse 7. To them, the chief of the eunuchs gave names. And I can imagine this is a special naming ceremony. The chief of the eunuchs brings them. And he says, you're in Babylon now. And we are going to give you the most exalted names. He plays on their pride. He tries to speak to the needs of their heart and to be accepted. He says, I'm going to give you exalted names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar. Belteshazzar. The god Bel was the chief god of all the Babylonians. He ruled over all. So Daniel receives a new name. You are special, Daniel. You've been set aside. You'll be educated in the schools of Babylon. You'll be supreme in the government. You are the keeper of the hid treasures of Bel. That's what Belteshazzar means, the keeper of the hid treasures of Bel. Then he goes on. He says to Hananiah, Shadrach. The name Shadrach means servant of the goddess of Sheba. Every one of these names is a change of identity. This subtle change of identity to the name Mishel, Meshach. Meshach means inspiration of the sun. The sun god was one of the chief gods of Babylon. And so your name is inspiration of the sun. You are so honored. You're receiving the highest names of Babylon. And then ...to Azariah, Abednego. Abednego is servant of Nebo. So they were given these names in a special naming ceremony. They were to receive the gods of Babylon. Their identity was changed. Once you lose your sense of identity as a Christian... ...once you do not recognize who you are... ...and once you lose that sense of identity you're on your road to compromise who are you today who am i i'm a son of god you're a son of god you're a daughter of the king we have been called by christ to be an ambassador for jesus in this world
1: pastor mark finley will continue with more in just a moment stay tuned you can grow in your knowledge of god's word by enrolling in online courses by pastor mark finley Go to Hope Lives 365 Bible Bible prophecy, discipleship, leadership, or improving your health. These courses are especially designed to help you discover deeper insights into the Bible. Go to Hope Lives 365 Bible That's Hope Lives 365 Bible Or call right now to register 888 244 HOPE. That's 888 244 4673. 888 244 HOPE. Here now, once again, Pastor Mark Finley.
0: One day, a preacher was preaching in New Orleans. He was called the Preacher of Bourbon Street. I don't recommend you go there. The preacher, Bourbon Street, very famous preacher, Pastor Bob, Bob Harrington was his name, Bob Harrington, Pastor Bob. And he would always take his Bible, go down among the disaffected and drunks and preach down in Bourbon Street in New Orleans. And one day he was preaching and a drunk guy came out of the bar and poured beer on top of his head and poured beer all over his Bible. He kept preaching. Another day he was preaching in Bourbon Street and some guy came and ripped the page out of his Bible. Well, one day he was walking on Bourbon Street and these guys half drunk came out and they said, Pastor Bob, where are you going? And he simply looked and he said, well, I'm going to heaven, but I'm just passing through town. I'm going to heaven, but I'm just passing through town. Once you lose your identity, once you don't recognize who you are, a son of God, a daughter of God, an ambassador for Christ, you're on your way to be squeezed into the devil's mold, but not only his identity in the general Christian context, but Daniel knew who he was. Daniel knew that he was special, that he was a Jew, that he was an Israelite, that he was to represent the true God before the world. Daniel, he understood his identity. As Seventh-day Adventists, we understand our identity. Although there are many Christian churches, we believe that God has raised up the Seventh-day Adventist Church at a unique moment in Earth's history to prepare a world for the coming of Jesus. We do not believe we're superior to other Christians, but we do believe that this is a unique, divine, prophetic movement. And once you lose that sense of identity, once you fail to understand who you are as an Adventist, once you have this idea, well, does this make that much difference or does that make that much difference? And I'm just one of many Christians. Once you lose that sense of prophetic identity, Satan will begin to manipulate your mind and say, well, why does this little compromise make a difference? Or why does that little compromise make a difference? The Bible says in Daniel 1, verse 8, Daniel 1, verse 8, but Daniel purposed in his heart. Now, Daniel and his three friends were ushered into the banquet room of King Nebuchadnezzar. And there, everything to delight the eye, everything to tempt the taste was on the table. The food was offered to idols, and for them to participate in taking that food would have been idol worship. Also to partake of that food, they would have compromised their integrity, violated their conscience because there was pork and other unclean foods there on that table. It would have defiled their health and deterred God's purpose for them. God has a destiny for you. And if we compromise our integrity, we will fail to ever reach the destiny that God has for us. The Bible says, Daniel 1 verse 8, it says, but Daniel purposed in his heart. Some translations say this word purposed, incidentally, is a very, very strong word. It means determined. It means decided. The heart here, keep your finger in Daniel 1 and turn to Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. And here in Proverbs 4, verse 23, the Bible says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. In the Old Testament, this is Proverbs 4, verse 23. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. The heart has to do with the mind. You know, as a man thinketh in his what? Heart. So is he. So it has to do with the inner recesses of the mind. So the Bible says Daniel purposed in his mind. He decided in his mind, in the inner recesses of the soul, where it really matters, Daniel could not compromise his convictions. Author Samuel Johnson wrote this, The chains of habit are generally too small to be felt until they are too strong to be broken. Think about it. The chains of habit are generally too small to be felt until they are too strong to be broken. If Daniel would have compromised his integrity there, if Daniel would not have made a firm decision to purpose in his heart, he would have started a process in which he was bound in Babylonian thinking. C.S. Lewis in Scrutag letters said this, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, the soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. I like that. The safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, the soft underfoot. He's right. It's the daily compromises that erode our faith. Now, Ellen White, in the book Prophets and Kings, comments on Daniel's firmness. Page 483, she says this. Should these Hebrews, she says, should they, that is these Hebrews, compromise with wrong in this instance by yielding to the pressure of the circumstances, their departure from principle would weaken their sense of right and their abhorrence of wrong. The first step would lead to others until their connection with heaven severed, they would be swept away by temptation. I remember a time that we were negotiating for the Olympic Stadium. I had preached in Pahana University in Moscow, had preached in the... Kremlin Auditorium, and one of the things we really wanted to do was preach in the Olympic Stadium in Moscow, the part of the stadium that we would have seats 18,000 people, and Billy Graham had preached there for three days, we had negotiated with the Yeltsin government if they were willing to give it to us to be there for a month, so we went to negotiate for it. And we had a certain figure in our mind. If you rent the Olympic Stadium for a month, I was thinking that the charge would be about $150,000 for that month. And we had gotten some large donations, and we were able to do that. Incidentally, when we got the Olympic Stadium, I brought with me a 100 medical personnel, and we treated 20,000 people from Moscow. We took 18,000 blood samples. It was just amazing what God did there. But anyway, so we went to the head honcho, the chief of the Olympic Stadium, to negotiate. And I was thinking, okay, they're going to charge us about $100,000. And so he came back with the contract and gave it to us. And he said, I looked at the contract, and it said $100,000. And I was really thrilled. And then he looked at me, and he smiled, and he said, look, and I had a group with me. He said, I'll tell you what. I've really reduced the price, and it is $100,000, and you can just make the check out to the government. But what I really want you to do is give me $25,000 in cash. Now, I was thinking $150,000. He offered us twenty five thousand less, a hundred thousand in the contract, but twenty-five thousand in cash. I knew exactly what the man was doing, he was trying to bribe us. I knew it immediately. But man, I wanted that Olympic Stadium. I wanted to preach to all those people. So I mean that would be alright, wouldn't it? I mean, because we were thinking $150, we could save twenty five thousand dollars of the Lord's money. I mean and what he did with the twenty five thousand, that was up to him, right? No. No, no. I looked at our team, looked at him and said, we're going to need to discuss the contract. We went back to our room and we sat down and I said this, look, if we lose the Olympic Stadium, we lost it. If that man says $125,000 in the contract, we'll pay it. But we're not giving him $25,000 cash. Because I know that that's a bribe. And if we go that direction... What will we do the next time, or the next time, or the next time? So we came back, and we got on our knees and prayed. And then we went back to him, and probably nobody has ever said this to him before. We said, sir, we think the contract is a mistake. We think you charged us too low. We would feel so uncomfortable paying only 100000 for the stadium. So what we would propose is you take the $25,000 cash, put it in the contract, and we pay to the government for the stadium $125,000. We're willing to do that because we wouldn't want to be dishonest and we know the value of the stadium. (laughs) You know, (laughs) I'm gulping you, wondering, what am I going to do next? He said, okay, I'll rewrite the contract. When he saw we weren't going to bribe him, he didn't budge. He knew that we were not going to budge, and he knew that he had to put that in the contract. We were not going to make that decision. Let me tell you about a 33-year-old young woman. I know her very, very well. She was 33 at the time. Her husband was a graduate student, a Ph.D. student, so he wasn't working. She was trying to support the family on a very modest income, working as a dietitian. As she was working in this particular hospital as a dietitian, she was doing so well in her work that she attracted the attention of a large pharmaceutical company. And the pharmaceutical company came to her and they said to her, we want you to work for us. She met with the vice president of that corporation, an intelligent, thinking young woman. And the vice president said, look, she was making $33,000 a year at the time, trying to support her family. Her husband was studying for his Ph.D. They were living in a little apartment. They had other bills to pay. And so the vice president of this pharmaceutical corporation met with her, and he said to her, look, We really want you. You're talented. You're an intelligent young woman. You can do the job. We want you to represent our pharmaceutical corporation for four states. We're going to start you at $90,000 a year salary.
1: Oh, unfortunately, we are completely out of time. Please join us tomorrow to hear the rest of this story here on Hope Lives 365. We are a listener-supported ministry and would love for you to partner with us as we continue to present Christ-centered biblical truths of Scripture in practical, relevant ways. Call 888-244-HOPE. That's 888-244-4673. Visit the website hopelives365.com to find out more about Pastor Mark Finley at Lives 365 if you have the means to bless us with a little larger gift of $500 to $1,000 or more, that would particularly help us right now to continue to bring you these messages here on this station. Call 888 244 HOPE. That's 888 244 4673 or visit HopeLives365.com. Thanks for listening today to Hope Lives 365.